There we go. I didn't want to yell. I could. Yeah, I, I also noticed uh, Ralph and Tanisha here today, and it was just like they should be there. That's a good place for them to be. Uh, and we're just thankful to see them. No. There we go. Now we're, all right. we're adjusting me right now. Uh, and But I know some other faces, too. Christopher Ashburn over here. We're glad to see him from school. And, and Jack Gibbs. He's normally not here on a Sunday, and I'm thankful to see him. And I can name other names, so, but, but then I have to go through every person. I'm thankful for that every person here. But, you know, one, one uh, another group of people I'm really... I want you to know that you highly encourage me is those of you with the little children. I can hear one right now. And I know sometimes you're handing those little kids and and you're you're, you're getting about five percent of what's being done in an assembly. And you're thinking, you know, yeah, I'm seeing the yeah. And you're like, why? You know, what's the use? Is this is this worth it? Should I? It, you're, you are where you ought to be. And I'm thankful for you. I think that what you're doing is you're raising these children in a way you're showing by their example. You're encouraging the rest of us. And so when I hear them say, yay, after a song, it's like, that's wonderful. They're just praising the Lord in their way. And don't be embarrassed if they, if they start crying and acting up and you have to take them out. That's fine. If I start crying and acting up, my mother's here. She'll take me, She'll take me out. My dad, my dad, he's done that before. He can do it again. So, you know, so don't worry about that. You just, you just come and enjoy yourself and, and, uh, and let your little children uh, learn about the Lord here. Uh, there's so much to say. You know, uh, what Richard and Ed both shared uh, just fits right into this. The songs that fit right into my lesson. Ed said, I hope I didn't steal your thunder. Uh, you did not. It was just a distant rumbling. The, the thunder cloud has come now, and uh, it's, going, it's going to be a drenching rain at this point. So you didn't steal the thunder, but you did help me summarize that. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to my daughter-in-law, Colleen, and she asked me, are there any more lessons? Are you having any more lessons on First John? And I said, well, yeah, one or two. Have a couple more left, and she said, "I'm going to miss First John," and that was encouraging to me uh, because I'm going to miss First John too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not tearing it out of my Bible. I'm not saying that way, but miss presenting these lessons to you because they've been to me uh, life changing personally, and I realize I'm the only one who has attended every lesson. Uh, every one of you have you know, missed a lesson or two here and there. And so uh, it, it's, I know it, it means more in some ways in, in my study, the hours I've spent uh, thinking about this book and studying it. And, uh, and like I said, it, it's been true, truly, I'm not, this is not a, just a statement. It's been truly life-changing in the way I think and hopefully the way I live also. Uh, you know, it's a good time at this point. This is just going to be a summary of First John. And this, this was a struggle. I thought this was going to be an easy lesson. I thought, oh, yeah, this, this, and this. But as I went through it, man, it, it was overwhelming as I went through uh, previous notes and, and trying to condense this little book in one sermon. 
I was very tempted to take five, six, seven lessons <laughs> to summarize, but no, I'm not going to do that. Just one lesson. But I want to stop for a moment and just, it's, this is a good time. I've done this a couple of times in the past to let you know why I do what I do, why I present lessons the way I present them. And I know, man, these days, opinions, oh my, you get on the internet, internet has encouraged opinions. And it doesn't matter what the subject is, the opinions abound. And, uh, and so when we come, and come to your opinion on why you preach and how to preach and all that, I know there's a million opinions. But, you know, the only opinion that counts is mine. <laughs> I said that with teasing, okay? But in a sense it is because I'm, I'm, I'm the one up here regularly. Uh, and someone just thought, not for long. <laughs> but I am going to take a moment just to, just to kind of go over, why do, I, why do I present lessons the way I, I do? I believe that church growth is only achieved by God. And that God works in the lives and hearts of people through the scriptures, his word. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about that. You read the, that chapter, and, and Paul just says, what, what in the world am I? I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant of God. Uh, I planted some seeds, and Apollo waters that God gave the increase. And so that's where I think our focus needs to be, is planting and watering the seed and not trying to give the increase. That's God's job. And this isn't to say that we don't look at methods or seek ways of keeping people's attention. I, I know that's a good thing. We should do that. We should enhance our assembly, you know, enhance, you know, our singing and our fellowship together. We need to do things, a well-organized time together. You know, you, you have to say something what you are, and then you have to say what you're not a lot of times. And, and I take that from John. John often said, this is what, I, what we are, and then this is what, what we're not. And so in the same way, in explaining what I do, I have to say what I'm not doing, too. And I'm not saying that we don't use our minds and use our abilities to enhance our time together. I'm not advancing a boring time together or one that ignores the cultural norms of the day. But what I am saying is that a focus on these external things, the external things that we do, may produce a feeling of excitement and even can produce numerical growth, but the substance will be lacking or weak, weakened. An example, for a time, the big churches that everyone looks to, the big churches that are growing and doing wonderful, they, uh, they, try to, they, they emphasize having short, pithy less lessons of about 20 minutes long. And they say you have some quick attention getter, a quick punchline, is designed to catch everyone's attention uh, and not leave them bored, you know, leave them wanting something uh, more. And a lot of this was, I, I thought, was insulting to you young people, all right? And, and uh, I didn't want to insult you. But, you know, it's like they, what they were saying is young people today can't listen more than 20 minutes. Young people today are used to having 30-second sound bites on the, on the Internet, radio, um, not radio, you don't listen to radio, uh, television, whatever it is. And just these quick things. And I thought, that's, that's really insulting to me. If, if I were told, you can't listen very long, uh, that would be insulting to me. Uh, if someone's asleep, or, you know, just kind of poke them right now. 
been over three minutes. Uh, but, you know, to me, that's insulting. But many of the churches, these big churches today are now saying, you know, we have a lot of members here who are weak and unsteady in a foundational way in the scriptures. And now these same people who promoted 20 minute lessons are saying 40 minutes. We have to have at least 40 minutes for a sermon to help overcome this instability of weak Christians in the church. Well, I don't. I don't follow trends. I set them. <laughs> I've been preaching 40 minute and longer sermons for a long time. And, and I really try not to follow the trends, but at the same time, try to listen to the culture. And there's a dif- difference here. Trends are short term answers that that change almost every year. They just from one year to another year. I remember this is a silly one was told that if you're up on a podium uh, do not cross your legs because the people can see the underside of your shoes and they'll know how, how poor you are or something. I don't know what it was. It was but, you know, it's stuff like that. And you think, you know, if, if that's where my focus is on these external things of, of how to keep your attention, don't let you see the bottom of my shoes. And look at some of you looked at my shoes right then. No, they're not polished. They haven't polished them for a while. You know, but it's like, well, that would distract. And, it's, you know, there's this kind of thing that I just... I just put to the side and that's trendy and I'm just not going to go go there. But at the same time, uh, Paul said to the Jews, I, I spoke as a Jews to the Greek. I, I spoke as a, a Greek. And so even there, I, that, I know that's not completely possible because I've lived in two foreign countries and I've tried to adapt to the culture. And I've tried to, you know, to speak to the Fijians as a Fijian and speak to the New Zealanders as a New Zealander. And yet I realized that after living, I don't know how many years of my life I've lived overseas, 20 years of my life I've lived overseas, I, I've come to realize about the time I think I understand a culture, something happens and I've, I'm woken up and I was like, I, I have no clue what this culture is saying. And even though you try to adapt to the culture, you can't fully do that. And so to the Americans, I try to speak as an American. But we do this through God's word. And not through being trendy or cool or any such thing. And, and not by being uncool or weird either. I mean, you know, you're not trying to do... You, the goal isn't out there. The goal is to present God's Word. And so my philosophy is to let God's Word set the subject instead of my wisdom. You know, there's a time to choose a topic. There's, uh, there's a time to take something that says... This church at this particular time needs to, to, we need to refocus here on this area. So I'm not, again, I'm not saying we don't choose topics. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is if I consistently do that, I'm relying on my own wisdom. And even if I have the combined wisdom of a group of people, we can have a committee to come together and decide what the church needs to hear. We're, de- we're depending on human wisdom to, to see what, to, to try and figure out what you need to hear. If I don't think you're kind enough, then I'll preach on kindness one week. If I think you're too materialistic, I focus on materialism. If I don't see your dedication to the Lord because a group of you or a large number weren't at a church-sponsored event, then I'll, I'll preach on your lack of dedication. And topical lessons generally do that, not all the time, but they focus on what's wrong And then there's a series of corrections to challenge you to change the way I think you need to change. 
And a constant dike on that, in my opinion, is teaching the church, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You just can't live up to the standards that God has given us. On the other hand, reading God's word and studying God's word together lets God set the agenda. We let him expose what needs to be exposed. Second Timothy three sixteen says. All scripture is God breathed, 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 inspired, some say. Do we believe that this is the breath of God? Not the book, the words that are in here. The scriptures, the breath of God, and it's useful for teaching, what's the next one, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the person of God will, will be, will, uh, will, come on, help me, every good work, something, what? Thoroughly equipped, that's what I'm trying to, I, I, that's the word, you try and stand up here and quote scriptures, <laughs> thoroughly equipped. <laughs> Be thoroughly equipped in every good work. And I don't think that scripture is saying that I choose, oh, today I'm going to rebuke, today I'm going to teach, today I'm going to train. I think every time I open up the word of God and preach God's word, you in the audience who are listening, some of you are being taught. And you'll say, hmm, some of you are being corrected. Ah, I've been off course a little bit. Some are being rebuked. Some are being trained. And it all depends on the listener and not necessarily the speaker. So when anyone gets up here, our most boring speaker gets up here and he opens the word of God. Let's remember that he is presenting God's breath and that we need to listen to God's word and, and try to and try to just kind of erase the person up here in a sense, because I don't appeal to everyone and. You know, whoever doesn't appeal to everyone. Doesn't matter who you have. And so it's a listener that's important. Your your responsibility of listening. Listen to this passage in Proverbs chapter two. And I, I this this is my goal for you and for me for me, my son, my daughter. Listen to the verbs here. If you accept my words and you store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom. And applying your heart to understanding. And if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding. And if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. There's nothing lazy about that. How many times have I told you Christians learn to think Christians? There's, there's no laziness in the Christian life if we're living it right. Look at those verbs again, accepting and storing up and turning and applying and calling out and crying aloud and searching and looking. This is, should be our attitude towards God's word. I want to find out what God wants and how God wants me to live. And Jesus said this a lot of times. He said, if you got ears, listen, he who has ears, let him hear. Why did Jesus say that? Because he's looking out there and he's seeing people off in the Bahamas or wherever they are. Uh, off uh, in Tiberias. <laughs> you know, their minds are off somewhere else. They're thinking, he said, listen, if you got ears, perk them up. Listen, because this is God's word that I'm saying. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 3, this is written to Christians. This is not written to non-Christians saying, come into, 
come, you know, I, I want you to become Christians. This is written to the church in Laodicea. Do you remember their problem? Do you remember their problem? Apathetic. They've heard it all. They're rich. And he said, no, you're not. You're poor. These are second, third, fourth generation, maybe not fourth generation Christians, but surely second and third generation Christians. People who have been raised in the church, we'd say. That's who he's talking to. People have heard the message over and over. They were raised. Sunday school, Robert Wade and his class talking about, what was it, coloring, coloring, uh, coloring book stories, you know, where you color in and Bible class, you color in these different stories. They were raised. They had all these stories. They knew it. And they were just apathetic. And Jesus says to them, listen, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Listen, listen, I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. You know what eating means there? It doesn't mean just having a good meal. It means fellowship. It means conversation. It means this back and forth. That's what God's word is all about. And so as long as I'm here, I'll do my best. To present the word of God to you in this whole. That's what I want to do. I'll do my best to promote, not to promote myself or the current trend. And I'll try to present this message in the way that American ears can hear it. To the Americans, I will attempt to become an American. I have a hard time with that. I really do. I don't know where I'm from. I, I, I said, you know, I, and I can blame my parents. They took me overseas at seven. And reculturize me to something else. But you know, I am most comfortable in my life when I'm on a plane going somewhere. I'm, I'm, I, I feel out of place in America, but when I'm on the plane going to Fiji, when I'm going on the plane, I feel ah, I'm at home. And then when I'm in Fiji, I'm, I'm not, it's not quite home either. It's like when you're going, and this, this is common for children who've been raised overseas is they're not really sure where their home is. And so I'll do my best to speak as an American to you American ears. And I'm thankful for those of you who aren't Americans. There's several here that aren't. And I'm thankful that you can maybe relate a little bit there. I'm going to look at some lessons from 1 John. And we're going to go through this quickly. It's overwhelming, as I said, this past week as I was going through it. Um, I didn't get discouraged, but I, 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 I became frustrated. I became tired as I went through and thought, what, how can I summarize this in a very quick way? And so I'm, I picked six, six lessons we've learned, and we're going to look at them very, like I said, very briefly. And one of the things I'm going to do to aid us is in sections of it, I'm going to read you my paraphrase. And let me tell you what the paraphrase is once again. This is called an extended, expanded paraphrase in which I try to take the verse and just summarize it. As summarize a whole sermon in one little verse, and sometimes the nuances of the tenses of the language of the words, I expanded them to try and let us uh, really see what John is trying to say, at least what I believe what uh, John is trying uh, for us to see. The first lesson I learned, and it was, it was uh, eye-opening for me. This really, really helped me. It helped me understand this book is that the whole letter is centered around three goals. And it's so obvious. He, he, um, he tells you what his goals are. Uh, the, the danger of reading commentaries is sometimes they can distract you, and you can think something that maybe isn't really what, what is being said. 
most commentaries will say something like, John wrote this to fight the, uh, the apostasy of Gnosticism. And a lot of you go, well, what in the world is that? You know? You know, and, so you, and so you're already turned off at some theological whatever that's going on. Way back then, does it apply now? And yet, if you just read the scriptures over and over again, that's why I encourage you, read the scriptures over and over again and use your brain and think about it and just ask questions as you read, you'll start seeing some things you may have never seen before. And so he says here three times, he says, I wrote this, I write this for, for this reason, for this purpose. And he gives three. You know it. If you've been here, you, everyone here who has ears to hear <laughs> knows these three by this time. Because I've said them so many times. He wrote this so that you will have what? Go ahead. And, for those who don't know, joy to make our joy complete so that you will not sin. Chapter two and verse one. And so that you may know that you have eternal life. Chapter five and there in verse um, 13. He says, and, and like I said, this is a key to understanding the, uh, the, the first John. He says, I want your joy to overflow. I want you not to sin. I want you to know that you have eternal salvation. And so I, I, I paraphrase it this way. We write all this so that our mutual joy may be filled to the full and overflowing. And then chapter two, verse one, my dear little ones, I am putting this down in black and white for this express purpose. So that you will not sin, not even once. And then chapter 5, verse 13. All this I have written to you, to those who have centered their trust, who lean the whole weight of their lives upon the nature and character of the Son of God for this purpose. You may be absolutely certain that you possess life, eternal life. And so as I read through this book over and over, I would keep Coming back to the purposes that John, John wrote this for. And so if there was a statement that, that seemed to rob me of my joy, if there was a, a statement that made me question uh, my salvation, and there are some very black, he, he, he has, some, as we'll see in a moment, very black and white statements that sometimes say, well, I don't know if I'm saved then. When I said that, I said, something's wrong with the way I'm thinking because John wrote this so I would be sure, not so that I would question my salvation. John wrote this so I'd have joy and not anxiety. John wrote this. If, if anything in this Bible, in this, in this passage, kind of gives me an excuse to sin, I'm missing the point. And so I would go, be driven back to these purposes over and over. Second, I told you I'm going to go through this fast. The second lesson that I learned is this, and you've heard this many times, haven't you? We must be God-centered and Christ-focused. And that's how we accomplish all those goals. When I'm not Christ-centered, I lose my joy. When I'm not God-centered, I sin. I think when you're God-centered, when you're focused on God, you will not sin. You will not if you believe that God is abiding in you, that he's actually with you, and a temptation comes to you, you will not sin just like you would not sin if you were tempted to do something and suddenly an elder walked in the room. Or a preacher. Or your mama. <laughs> Isn't that true? 
You're sitting there tempted to do something and you're struggling with it. And then suddenly someone that you respect and admire and love comes into your life and suddenly you're a good boy. You're a good, good girl. Why? Because you don't want to disappoint them. You don't want to hurt them. You don't want to get caught, maybe. And in the same way, what we have to do, I believe, as a Christian, the more I thought about it, the more I'm convinced of this. When I sin, I have to. Get rid of God. I've got to just push him out the door for a little while so I can do my thing over here. But really, that's what I'm doing. Mentally, I'm just kind of shutting the door on God. He's taking care of the Iraqi problem at this point in our life or whatever problem, big problem of the world there is. He's taking care of that, and then I can whatever do my sin. You see my point? When we're God-focused, we cannot sin. And that's why he wrote this. When I'm God-centered and Christ-centered, when I'm not God-centered and Christ-centered, I lose my assurance. I don't know. Because joy is not based in my performance. It's based in Him. Removing, from my sin, removing sin from my life is wrapped up in Him and who He is. Assurance of my salvation is because of His work, not my work. I've said this before. If God asked me, if I stand in, in, on the day of judgment and God asked me, why should I let you in? Why should I let you in? I have one answer, and it's the blood of Jesus. That's it. That's it. It's not the sermons I've preached. It's not the stuff I've done. It's not the good deeds. It's not the Bible. It's nothing like that. It's only because of the blood of Jesus. And so I can be sure of my salvation because I'm sure that he died for me. And as Richard was saying, I've been buried with him in baptism. I've been raised to walk a new life. I'm in a new life right now. And because of that, I can stand assured. Over and over, the stress is on God, what God has done through Christ. We Christians have been called not to be sinless, but to sin less. We're learning. It's a process. It's a growth where we learn to sin less. Because as we are convicted of our sins, as we see these things, as we see our misdemeanor sins tearing things apart, then we know how bad those little sins are. And we we start putting them off. We say no to those things. I'm not going to do that anymore. We get all wrapped up in our sins sometimes. I think to the point, and this is where I, when I counsel uh, Christians, they have run away from God. They've pushed, they've, 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 because of their sins, they've run, they're ashamed, they're running away from their sins. And yet this little book said, when you sin, run to God. Don't be afraid. Run to Him. My paraphrase of the second part of that verse, where, of chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, I wrote this so that you will not sin. And then he says, but... If anyone does sin, and certainly that will happen, we have an advocate, one who speaks face to face with the Father, declaring our innocence. He is our complete defender against Satan. Jesus, the man appointed by God, righteous. Again, it centers in Christ. It's not not my sinlessness. It's his sinlessness, his righteousness. He's been anointed by God, and because of that, Because of that, I can stand justified before him. He speaks to God face to face on my behalf. 
And tied to this, this self, this uh, Christ-centered, is that powerful passage, uh, probably the most powerful passage to me in First John is chapter one, verse seven. If you were here this that, that day, I I was drained physically. I didn't know if I would, could finish the sermon. I didn't know if I could start the sermon. This verse kept me away. Actually, verses one through ten, but this particular verse in uh, in, in particular kept me awake at night. I was, I was operating on two to three hours of sleep, and I'm not exaggerating. I would sleep for an hour. I'd wake up. I must have been dreaming. I'd get up. I'd, start, I'd write notes. I was so excited about this. I was so overwhelmed by this passage. It was so amazing to me that I was sitting over there while whoever was leading the singing, and I almost passed out. My throat was dry. I went to the bathroom and put water on my face. I had two people say, are you okay? I, I must have looked like a, a ghost or something. I, I looked sick, obviously. Later, Joan uh, Palmer, doctor, our doctor, Joan Palmer, she, when I described how I was feeling, she said, you're dehydrated. I was thirsty. Literally, I was thirsty for a month. She said, get Gatorade. I drank Gatorade for a month because this passage literally wore me out. And it was a good thing. I'm glad it did. Because he says there, he's talking about this relationship we have with God. And it, and it really helped me see what light and darkness is. He said... The paraphrase, but if we live our lives in the open exposure of God's light, his glorious light, which we saw in chapter one, verse five, he's light that penetrates and shows us who we are, that partnership, communion and relationship with God exists. And the blood of Jesus, his son, continually whitewashes and cleanses and takes away absolutely all sin in our lives. You see. I approach this a lot of times as walking in the light is living a sinless life. Walking in the light is doing the right thing, living a good life. Walking in the light means I might have the misdemeanor sins in my life. But that's not what this means at all. And to me, this is so good news as living in reality. The reality is this. I sin and I need a continuous Savior. It's not that I sinned in the past and Jesus took care of my sins and now I'm, everything's fine. I'm okay now because Jesus took care of my past sins so I can kind of live my life and everything's kind of cool. Everything's fine. I'm handling life on my own. That's not living in the light. And later on in verse 8, confession isn't just public repentance, but it's saying the same thing God says about my sin. That's what the word confess means. Saying the same thing as. So when God, whatever God says about my sin, I just say, amen. I I agree with you, God. That's what what confession is. And so what does God say about my sin that I commit every day through through either not doing what I should do or doing things I shouldn't do? He says this, you can't take care of it. And if I finally realize and say, amen to that, God, I cannot take care of my own sins. That's what God says. Instead of pushing me away from God, it drives me to him. He takes care of my past sins and he takes care of my present sins. I'm always in need of continual cleansing in my life. It drives me back to God. It doesn't drive me away from God. It doesn't give me an excuse to sin. It actually frees me. It makes me see this. I need God more than I ever realized. Let me read. I have a statement here. Here it is. Kind of trying to define walking in the light and walking in darkness. 
Walking in the light means living a life in the open exposure of God, revealing to you your sins as you utterly depend on him for your initial salvation and your continued salvation. Walking in the light doesn't mean everything's fine. Walking in the light means God continually exposes what needs to be exposed and he's continually helping and, 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 um, and, and, and showing me my sins. And as he does that, I'm going to him and he's continually washing me of my sins. That's what walking in the light is. And walking in darkness is living a life when we have moved to the point where we are handling our, our own sins. Thank you very much. I've gotten rid of all the bad ones. I'm not doing this bad sin, that bad sin. I've gotten rid of all. I'm doing quite well now. That's darkness. And that's where Christians often go. They're like, you know, I got rid of the bad stuff. Okay, I'm, I'm fine now. No, you're not. The light continually exposes what needs to be exposed. Those sins of the mind and the heart and the, those attitude sins that need to be constantly refined. Wow. This could be two sermons. Let's, let's try and speed it up a little bit. Because, see, I'm trying to preach all these lessons. All right, the third one. John reminded who we are, what we will be, and how we will change. And, again, it goes right back to God. It's God-centered. There's the one place this comes out almost in poetry is chapter 3, verse 1, to 2, and 3. And here's, here's verse 1. It shows us who we are. And it's all through the book. I'm just going to chapter 3. In the yellow are my comments. In the red and the in the white is um, the scripture itself. See, some tra- translations doesn't have that, but it's like wow. That's what the word means. See, look at this. Wow, it's amazement. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Boom, God centered. That we should be called children of God. That's who we are. And so, because you don't believe it when it's said, He repeats it, and that is what we are. It's almost too good to be true. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world can't accept that fact, just like they couldn't accept Jesus. That's who we are. Over and over he says it. Chapter 3, verse 2, what we will be. Dear friends, now that we are children of God and what what will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is a promise. We're 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 not anywhere where we want to be. We all realize that. But one day, he says, you're going to be there. One day when he comes back, when he makes himself manifest, you will be like him. And so we can hang on to that promise and that hope. And chapter 3, verse 3, how we change. We're, we're not static. We're not just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come again. We're not just saying, well, I'm saved. Okay, now I've got to wait around. It's not that way at all. There's stuff we do while we're here, how we change. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so we see this, yes, purifying himself, and we, we kind of focus on that and say, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And yet he said, look, those who have his hope in him, God-focused, hope in him that's in the past, what he's done, purifies himself how? as he is pure. We have a goal there, too. And so, again, it's centered in God. It's centered in Christ once again. Let me read the paraphrase. Well, I think I have one other thing here. It's a deep cleaning, the whole of the person. It's just not just our sins. It's just the way we live our lives. And it's basically not just saying no to sin, even though, of course, that's a great deal of it, but it's saying yes to Jesus. It's saying, what do you want, Jesus? It's not just saying no to these things, but it's doing some stuff, too. That's how we change. And so the paraphrase goes like this. Think about this. The incredible, out-of-this-world kind of love that the Father lavished on us, that he called us his children. And that is actually what we are. 
Now, because we are his children, the world can't understand us. Why, it never understood him either. You are all loved of God. Right here and now, we are all children of God. It is not completely clear what we will one day be like. Yet what we do know is that when he returns and is fully manifested, we will see him crystal clear, just as he is. And then we'll be just like him. And every one of us who looks forward to this future truth, anchoring our expectation fully in him, will daily clean up our lives, making sure that what needs to be removed is put off and what needs to be added to their character is put on. Our eyes are fixed on God, who is completely pure, and he is our desire. Fourth lesson, we learn to value God's word. And we see this all throughout the letter again. But our first taste of it is in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, which I'm going to read to you. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. This word obey, it comes up in the NIV. It's in, in uh, keep in some of your translation. It means more than just simply a rote, uh, a, a, just a harsh obedience. It means to value, to esteem, to guard, to hold in high esteem. And so when you value and you esteem God's word, you will obey it. Our motivation is either looking at this, this book as a written code that I fear to break. Here's God's rules. Man, if I mess up. That's either our motivation as we come to God's word is I'm either afraid to mess up these laws or... It's a loving relationship that I love to keep. Read Psalms 119 over and over. You see David saying, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day. How wonderful are your words. And he goes on and on explaining how beautiful this is. I've never done that to the legal code of Alabama. Do you do that? Do you? Maybe some lawyers do. They go through there and, oh, how I love Alabama's laws. <laughs> It is my meditation day and night. No, we don't do that. But God's word is based in relationship. We read this and go, this, this is relationship. This is God's love being poured out to me. And so I love, it's not that I'm afraid not to keep it. I love to keep it. We'll read the paraphrase of this section here. This is how we experience a daily continuous growing knowledge that we actually have come to know him. And we still know him. We treasure, value, and hold in the highest esteem his commands, which leads to obedience. A person who says, I really know God, yet does not value and guard and hold tight his commands, lives an illusionary life. He is, in fact, a liar. God's truth, what is really real, is not a part of his life. But those who continually treasure and guard and hold on to his word, his instructions, his perfect law, and those people, God's law, God's love, Meets its goal and purpose, that of attaining maturity and completeness in him. Fifth, he gives several contrasts that give us, gives us clear vision, clear thinking. Some of these are uh, light, darkness. We've already seen this. Love and hate. The word love is used 35 times in the book of First John. The only other word that's used more is the word no. 
And we're, we're not even going to go to, uh, there. It's used 37 times. So God versus the world. And we see this over and over. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this will come up. And I'm, I'm out of time. I've, I've done, I'm all, almost done my 40 minutes. So I've got to hurry because now you're not going to listen past 40 minutes. <laughs> all right. See, I'm speaking to Fijians. We can go on. But I have to remember, we're talking to Americans. You've got to stop. So I'm not going to read verse 8 and 9. You can read that later. But we're not talking about the emotion when we read love in 1 John and hate. It's not the emotion of hate. And it's not the emotion of love. Rather, it's the actions of love. And the actions of hatred that he's talking about. How we act. And then he talks about this between God, the, word, the world and God in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And again, I'm, I'm out of time, so I'm not going to read that. But let me read the paraphrase real quickly. Do not live a world-focused life, being mesmerized by it while clamoring for its favor and fellowship. For nothing is more incompatible and directly opposed to a God-focused life than a world-centered existence. If you hug the world close to your heart, you'll squeeze God-love right out of your life. I think I have another one here. Do I? There we go. Here's the reason. The whole world system, which is composed of the gnawing hunger of fulfilling all feelings and the illegitimate desire to pursue whatever appeals to you and the haughty pride of outdoing everyone and bragging about what you've accomplished and accumulated does not spring from the Father, but percolates from the cauldron of the world. The world with its never-ending and insatiable yearnings are fleeting and valueless. However, the person who keeps on doing what God desires lives forever. Which brings us into the last point. We live in reality. We live in the real world. The real world is, 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 uh, is defined by God. He uses the word truth or true, true or truth 11 times. And what he means by that is real. This is real. This is reality. You want to know what real is? God will tell you what reality is. He focuses us and, of course, is all centered in Christ. And we see this right at the beginning of the of uh, the first chapter where he's talking about walking in the light. And this is the whole section that kept me awake. The reality of God. He's light. That's who he is. And everything that encompasses uh, light. The reality of truth. Verse six, seven, the reality of fellowship with God. This is this is what tr- is true about your fellowship with God. You have sins and they're exposed and he purifies you. That's real. And then he goes on in verse 8. The reality of the marred human condition. Don't pretend that everything's okay because everything's not okay. We, we live marred human lives. We live sinful lives. And, and he just puts it out there. That's true. And then the reality of God's view of my sins. Verse 9. He says, this is how I view your sins. And verse 10. The reality of sins and the revelation of his word in our lives. And it's just this thread goes throughout the entire book. Of this is real. This is how we look at the world. It's reality. The paraphrase. Let me read this quickly. I'm not writing this to you because you are not aware of the truth, reality, but you know it clear as a bell. It rings true in your ears because no discordant sound emanates from the truth. No lie can mix with the truth. So who is the liar? The false and faithless person. It is the one who says no to the fact that Jesus is the anointed one, fully God, fully man. This one definitely opposes Christ and thus says no to both the Father and the Son. You can't say no to the Son and claim a relationship with the Father. 
Whoever says yes to the Son is also saying yes to the Father. You, and this rests firmly on your personal responsibility, must continually let what you heard from the beginning abide in you as a way of life. If you do this, then you'll be actually and effectually have a permanent, secure, and comfortable home in the Son and in the Father. And you can count on it. He himself made this promise, eternal life. Continuing. I'm writing these things. Go back. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to cause you to wander all over the place, missing the point of life, the direction of life, life himself. As for you, the ointment, the good news that God be, of God become man, that you receive from him is firmly anchored in you. There's nothing to add to that. There's nothing further that someone can teach you or any deeper knowledge to obtain. And springing from, springing from the solid foundational truth comes every other teaching you need to learn. This is real. It's not something made up. So since you've learned your lesson, stick to that teaching. You know, there's no time to look at the word abide, boy. Sermons on abide. Life, born, no. Your personal responsibility all throughout there. We've touched on all of those as we've gone through these. But as I studied this lesson, these lessons in the past, this quote from Elizabeth Googe came to my mind. This is how I have felt almost every lesson as I've preached First John, and really every lesson from God's Word. John is a preacher. He's preparing sermons. And it says this in this book called The Rosemary Tree. John looked down on his sermon in despair. He was no preacher. The very glory of what he wanted to say seemed to get in the way of saying it. Try as he might, he could not write down what he knew. He was like a man trying to catch the moonlight on the water with a fishing net. When he pulled the net into his boat, there was nothing in it except two repulsive jellyfish and a bit of seaweed. And so as I come to God's Word and I'm trying to mine out this beautiful, beautiful lessons, these beautiful lessons that have... That in my mind, I, I see what they're saying, see what what, how God is changing me. And then I turn around and I, and I want to share it in a short 40 minutes. And it's like this. I, I just feel like all I've given you is some jellyfish, some seaweed. But I know that you can mind these lessons out as well as I can. That you can see what God is saying. You can see all these lessons that 1 John has given us. And 1 John basically just summarizes the entire Bible. That's really what it is. It's a summary of the entire Bible. So even though we'll be leaving 1 John, I bet I'll refer to it a lot. (laughs) Can't help but do that. I hope it's been a blessing to you as it's been a blessing to me. I hope those of you who are in Christ and that relationship with him will just be confident of that security that you have. Your joy will overflow so other people can see it. You will know when you, when you come and are tempted with sin, you can say no to sin because of that God-focused life that you have. If you're outside of Christ, man, this is where it all happens. This is where life really is. And so our elders are here. They will receive you if you need to say anything to them at all as we stand and sing this invitation song.